Today's show is sponsored in part by InterOptic. Fortune 500 companies choose InterOptic optical transceivers to minimize the risk of network failures and maximize IT savings. InterOptic's transceivers are 100% guaranteed compatible with Cisco, Juniper, Extreme, Arista, and others, and available at a fraction of the cost. Work with the optics experts at InterOptic. Go to interoptic.com packet pushers to find out more. Today's episode is sponsored by IT Pro TV. Start or grow your IT career with online IT training from IT Pro TV. And they have a special offer for Packet Pushers Heavy Networking listeners. Sign up and save 30% off all plans. How do you do that? ITPro.tv slash Packet Pushers to get that 30% off all plans. Use promo code Packet Pushers at checkout. Welcome to Packet Pushers Heavy Networking. Disaggregation, white box, and bundling has been changing the nature of data networking for the last 10 years or so. If I remember rightly, white box networking entered the mainstream around 2011. Not It was here before then, but mainstream 2011. And it really grabbed my attention and sort of most of the Packet Pushers almost immediately with the idea that flexibility, new technology choices, and new design patterns were possible. And I do think it's fair to say that white box networking has changed the network market substantially, but it's not always obvious what exactly changed because it's been 10 years and we haven't actually seen everybody deploying white box, but there's been really, really deep ramifications. You might think today that only a few companies are buying low-cost hardware and using open software in their routers and switches, but what many people do not consider is that the rise of consumer technology and the cloud companies has also reduced the importance of enterprise IT to just one of three markets. Once upon a time, enterprise IT was the tail that wagged the technology dog. Now you're one of the three legs of a three-legged dog stumbling its way into the technology future of the cloud. So it's absolutely true that the biggest IT companies, that is the most of the cloud companies, actually do use white box networking and open source operating systems. And this matters a lot because the amount of money these companies spend have changed the market. It's the invisible hand of the disaggregation and the white box. So today's community show, we are joined by Dave Maltz from Microsoft. He is one of the leaders of the Sonic project. You've heard us talk about Sonic It is the switch operating system for networking in the cloud originally and was an extension of the switch abstraction interface. Things that we've talked about extensively over the last 10 years. I am absolutely delighted to welcome Dave to the show, but let's just dive right into the discussion. Let's kick it off with what is Sonic, what is Psy, and why are we talking about it? Well, thanks, Greg. Sure. So Sonic is a network operating system. If you're going to have routers and switches in your enterprise and your data center, that is essentially a bunch of ASICs that are really good at forwarding packets at line rate. And there's a general purpose computer that controls the functionality of those ASICs. So you need an operating system to run on that computer inside your router, your switch. And typically that would come from the same person that you bought that network hardware from. The idea of disaggregated computing, of course, and disaggregated networking is you should be able to get that software from anyone independent of who you get the hardware from. Mm. And we've seen the benefits of open source across the computing industry as a whole, Linux being the classic example of that. And so the idea here is, geez, we should have an open network operating system that can be run on these switches. Now, in order to enable that, you need to have some way to describe all of those ASICs that lay at the bottom of that router or switch. And that's where the system abstraction interface comes in. You can think of it as a common API by which a network operating system can talk to the hardware which it's trying to control. And so Microsoft came to this because we run a very large cloud. My day job is actually making sure that all the packets get between all the servers and virtual machines inside of our data centers. And doing that reliably at quality and while controlling costs is the most important thing for me and my team. And what we were finding was is that... Um, we had problems with all of the firmware that we would get from our different vendors. All software has bugs, but I run a network that has many different routers and switches from different vendors in it. And if I get different firmware from each of those vendors, all of their firmware has bugs. And I'd frequently find that I would have to find and fix essentially the same bug in multiple sets of software coming from the different vendors. So I've got a question here. One of the things about SAI, or SAI, as we generally sort of abbreviate it to in the switch abstraction interface, is that it abstracts the ASIC. And now one of the things that I always thought was the motivation behind SAI was also to reduce dependency on a single ASIC maker. So one of the lessons we learned from 
the Intel x86 is that we've had our operating systems converge on a single CPU architecture. And potentially many years ago, x86 was a superior architecture compared to MIPS or the DEC CPU of its era or, you know, any of the other CPUs of the time. Um, but we also became dependent on Intel to do the innovation. And that worked for a while, but like all good companies, they eventually stumble and fail, and we've now seen the rise of ARM and a range of other CPUs. Is is that part of what we play here, is that Psy abstracts you away from the ASIC makers and reduces dependency too? Okay, Psy has a really difficult role here. So absolutely, there's tremendous innovation happening in the ASIC space. And what we wanted to make sure is that there would be a variety of ASIC providers, um, you know, just for continuity of supply reasons. If something happens bad to one company, you want to have ASICs coming from another company so that we can build out our data centers. And it would certainly be easy if we basically took all ASICs and made them look the same. That notion of having an instruction set architecture that was the same essentially across all the different ASICs. But of course, no ASIC provider wants to operate in that kind of space. So what Psy has to do is basically make it easy to use the functionality that's essentially in common between all the different switch ASICs, while still yeah. allowing each switch ASIC vendor to expose the cool capabilities of their device so that the network operating system running on top can introspect and say, hey, I've got some extra telemetry features. I've got some extra monitoring or extra QoS features in this ASIC. Yeah. Let me leverage yeah. those to do better. Or I've got a different buffering algorithm across the uh, you know, a, a different VOQ algorithm as I feed into the fabric or on the output or whatever. How do I? Because we still want them to innovate and to add value. We want them investing in the technology. We don't want the ether, you know, the ASICs in our routers and switches to just freeze where they are now. And well, actually, kind of we do. We just want cheaper ones sometimes, but we also need feature rich as well. Well, that's exactly right. Yeah. And so Psy has uh, basically made common in a set of common headers, the things that are essentially common across most switch ASICs, but then has an ability to extend um, via extension headers and other capabilities so that, yeah, all that new innovation still can continue because we definitely want that. I don't think networking is a done problem. So, so that allows the ASIC makers to produce a core set of functionality, forwarding, you know, switching packets, routing sorry, switching frames, routing packets, as well as, you know, doing cross-handling and all those things that the ASIC is engaged with, uh, MPLS tagging, et cetera, et cetera. But you're still, Psy itself says this is the common features, but you can still come along and add something to that. So even though I'm running an operating system like Sonic, which uses Psy, and there's more than one operating system that runs Psy, if I remember right, is that correct? Absolutely. Yeah. So Psy is like a, a common layer that says, here's the ASIC underneath. If you use this off-the-shelf Psy, there's a common set of forwarding functions that you can have, but it still leaves room for the vendor to innovate. And then I could choose to have an operating system that goes sideways or either through Psy or around Psy to access, access, access that superset. That's right. So, for example, we've seen Facebook with FBOSS uh, looking at adopting size so it would be easier to move FBOSS between different uh, ASIC platforms. We also see people taking SI and applying it to uh, ASICs that you wouldn't think of as being part of either enterprise or data center switching, like Wi-Fi access points. Um, so people have been doing all sorts of extension headers into SI to make it to cover different families of ASICs. And that's really interesting because we haven't seen that multi-platform thing reach its like it hasn't reached its potential in the open market so we haven't seen maybe we'll talk about this more in later in the show but how enterprises haven't really latched onto this independence from the ASIC but can keeping the best features of it so most of Packet Push's audiences is enterprise centric which is part of why I wanted to get you on the show was to sort of put the sonic discussion in the frame of the enterprise and what people could see about that so I guess what we better do is get back to talking about we talked about the value of Psy uh, maybe it's also worth pointing out that there's more than just Broadcom making ASICs too there's a wide range of vendors making switching ASICs Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't even try and list them out here. If you go to like the Sonic website, we've got a list of all the people who are supporting Cy and Sonic, and it's nearly 10 ASIC manufacturers, if I remember. Yeah, so companies like Centec that you've never heard of, and they make low-cost campus-style ASICs or home-type ASICs, and there's a bunch of others. Marvel has come back into the switching ASIC market and so forth. That's right. Dave, I'm curious, um, inside Microsoft, are the, the Sonic and the Psy development teams different or more coupled? They are coupled. Um, so we have one team that's essentially focusing at that switch abstraction interface, but then also Sonic running on top of it. 
Okay, so that lets one group sort of focus on their expertise in interacting with the ASIC and the other group uh, focusing on OS features. I actually know that it is one team. So by getting that commonality, we get a lot of synergy. Um, essentially, you know, while individual people may specialize in one thing or the other, they sit right next to each other um, because that, that high flow of information uh, just benefits us and lets us move faster. Okay. Uh, I know that Sonic is an open project. Is Sci also open? Yes, it is. So uh, again, the essence of Sci is to try and um, uh, uh, create it open in terms of an ecosystem. So the ideas of even what Sci should work on and where the extension headers should come from are generated by public community discussion. Um, the uh, working groups that that hammer out exactly what the the size should be and various releases of size again is done in an open public forum. Um, implementations of SI, it's up to the individual ASIC manufacturer if they want to open source their implementation of SI. Some ASIC manufacturers like to keep their register reference manuals and theories of operations um, uh, closed and proprietary to, to protect their intellectual property, mm -hmm. and we're fine with that. Uh, what that means is that they just need to provide a closed source implementation of the open SI APIs. There are other ASIC manufacturers out there that do open source their whole, their whole SI library implementation. All right, so that's an interesting one. So Psy can be um, sold as a blob. So a vendor, a particular ASIC vendor might want to keep use its market power or it might want to control what its customers are doing with its products. So it licenses Psy. So the Psy is still open in terms of it's the same APIs and the same functionality, but its implementation is licensed by the ASIC maker. That's right. So for example... When I'm purchasing switches from Microsoft, what I insist on is that I'm going to get a hardware platform from a, a vendor, and they're also going to give me a SI implementation that goes along with their hardware platform. Right. And they have to support the SI. That's right. And, so, and when we're talking about open, I want to, is, are we talking about open different from open source? So that's a distinction I think that's important. Well, okay. So open source would typically mean that uh, the code's available under like a Microsoft license or a right. new license. And uh, typically the source code itself is available to be read and introspected or changed by um, by people who are then using that uh, that library. Um, so that we talk about the SI APIs as being open because they're created in this open forum and those, all those header files um, themselves are, are open source. The implementation of that API is then there's a question of whether that's going to be closed source or open source. As I say, some manufacturers have gone closed, some have gone open. Mm. Okay. And what about that's Sonic it. itself? Sonic itself is fully open source. So yeah, there's a public GitHub, which is where the Sonic main repositories are kept. And there's a large uh, ecosystem of over 800 contributors who are all working on that code base. And we welcome more participation. Well, let's keep going on the discussion. I kind of interrupted you there because to get into Psy, because I think Psy is important because it also talks to the market, how the market works, and it also explains how Sonic is abstracted away from the hardware itself. So let's move back to talking about how is Sonic and, and what does that look like now? Yeah, so Sonic as a project is this question of how do we create a network operating system that'll control that set of ASICs. Now, as an operating system for a piece of hardware, lots of different functionality that it needs to handle. Everything from how you start and stop processes that are running on there, how we deploy code and new capabilities onto that platform, as well as then all the kinds of things that you'd expect a router to do, such as run routing protocols like BGP, OSPF, link state protocols, spanning tree protocols, all yep. those sorts of things that you typically think of a router doing. So all of that capability is a part of Sonic. Now, uh, people often think of Sonic as, you know, oh, that's for data center use only, and certainly that's where we started. So the set of capabilities that Sonic uh, comes with uh, were originally those that uh, large cloud providers uh, like Microsoft, like LinkedIn, like Alibaba, like Tencent needed. But as a community ecosystem project, people want to take it and t apply it to enterprise. And so we've seen a lot of contributions recently adding what would typically be thought of as enterprise features uh, to Sonic. Yeah. And what Sonic does is provide an architecture that's easy to extend. And so again, the benefits of open source, if there's a capability that somebody wants that's not there yet, all they really need to do is participate in the forums and see if they can convince folks that, yeah, this is something that, that should be added to Sonic. And 
Uh, there are lots of building blocks to start with to then extend if it's necessary to add that functionality. So if I was to say things like FRR, which is a popular routing protocol suite, Sonic uses FRR or do you use something else? We actually have several routing protocol suites that are part of Sonic. Again, <laughs> okay. one of the cool things about Sonic is that it is extensible. And when people go to run Sonic on their particular switches, it's like choosing from a menu. You can choose which sets of protocols you want to run. Actually, speaking as a cloud provider, that's really good because mostly I only want to run the protocol suites that I need. Every line of yeah. code that I'm not actually mm. using is just another potential bug. Mm. So I winnow it down. But you know, Sonic makes it easy to do that. Sonic also makes it easy to pick from, say, like Quagga or FRR or some other routing protocol suites that are available. Might mean if I'm, you know, if I happen to be using Quagga today, maybe I want to keep using Quagga because I'm familiar with that or I feel comfortable that that's the right choice for my network. On the other hand, you might say, I want to use FRR because everybody else is and I'm not sure that Quagga is quite right for me. So now suddenly you've got choices that you might, you know, not otherwise have. That's exactly right. Have we seen any commercial routing implementations on top of Sonic yet? Like not FRR, not just commercial support of FRR, Quagga, et cetera, but actual commercially supported routing protocols? That's a great question. Um, we are certainly have some that are in progress. I don't think they're publicly announced yet, though. Okay. So it seems um, like a natural evolution. Somebody's going to step into that gap, I would think. Absolutely. The interesting thing about open source and networking at the moment is there's plenty of niches and lots of people looking for homes. We interrupt this podcast for a brief word from Pack-A-Pusher sponsor, InterOptic. InterOptic has been the trusted optical transceiver supplier for many federal, state, and local government networks and Fortune 500 companies. They provide friendly, U.S.-based, OEM-agnostic networking expertise to help you choose the best optics and fiber to future-proof your networks at the lowest cost. Why continue to pay OEM prices for optics? Talk to the experts who will deliver brand-equivalent transceivers at a fraction of the cost. InterOptic can help you and your team create a more nimble physical layer. Their optical transceivers are guaranteed 100% compatible with Cisco, Juniper, Extreme, Arista, and other switches. InterOptic physically tests every single transceiver before it's shipped, and their transceivers are built to the exact same quality standards as the OEMs and typically come from the same manufacturing lines. That means you can purchase the same, if not better performing, optical transceivers tested and designed by engineers who truly understand the specifications critical to your network at a fraction of OEM costs. It's time to take control of your optics purchases with InterOptic. Find out how at interoptic.com slash packet dash pushers. That's interoptic.com slash packet dash pushers. And now back to the conversation. Containerization. Uh, when I talk to other commercial implementations of network operating systems, modern network operating systems, containerization always comes to the top of the stack. You haven't mentioned that yet, but I'm pretty sure Sonic does use containers. Absolutely. And I think one of the distinguishing things about the Sonic architecture is that it is based around containers uh, essentially from inception. The idea being that we wanted to make it easy to manage uh, network switches and, in fact, leverage the capabilities that many teams had built to manage their web services to manage their switches in the same way. So all the software that makes up Sonic and all these protocol suites and extra capabilities that would run on Sonic are delivered to Sonic as containers. And, you know, there's work in progress to build Kubernetes management frameworks. So again, you can manage what containers are running on those switches uh, using the same type of things uh, that you'd use to manage containers on your servers. Uh, we also did a bunch of work with uh, the Docker team and Docker Swarm as a way of managing the containers on Sonic. Um, so it, 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 if you're familiar with how web services can be composed using uh features deployed as containers, that same kind of software development model as well as software deployment model applies to Sonic and switches that run Sonic. So containerization has a couple of benefits. Uh, you know, the, the way that we get pitched this a lot as containerization gives me stability. I can upgrade the app inside a container and then reboot it without taking down the entire, like having to reboot the whole operating system. And that improves my uptime. Is that still true here? Very much so. Um, it takes more than just containers that. So things that are nice about containers is that they pull together into one package all the dependencies. If you've ever tried to install software on Linux, sometimes you'd find it's like, oh, wait a second, I'm using the wrong version of this library or that library, mm. yep, and it yep. won't go in properly. When you create a software container, essentially all the dependencies necessary have been pulled in there. So when you deploy it, much more likely that it's just going to come up and work. 
The other nice thing is that containers are easier to test and develop because, again, they're fairly self-contained. And so there's a lot of great software tooling to help developers create a container and then run it through its paces. And we've got stuff that helps um, sort of emulate the lower layers of a switch so people on their desktop laptop um, can, can see how a container for Sonic would work if it was actually deployed out on the real hardware. Hmm. The third key part of this is just how Sonic is built. So Sonic's architecture um, involves something called a switch state service. So basically, you can think about it. There's a little database that runs on the switch that manages all of the state of that ASIC, all of the state of the switch. So what a routing protocol needs to do if it wants to change, say, the forwarding table is essentially write new uh, entries into the database table that represents the forwarding table. And yeah. what that means is that you can get containers from different companies, different types of logic, run them all on top of Sonic, and there's a nice uh, programming methodology by which they can you know, make the changes they need to make, control the state, and also see if there are other containers changing state that they care about. So it creates sort of a pub-sub system, uh, a message bus, if you will, between all, right. all the containers that are running on Sonic. And so those are the sort of the three things. So I might have some sort of – let me try and have a stab at that to see if I can just tease yeah. that out a little bit further. I might have a situation – and this is entirely contrived, so it might not be very realistic – but I might want to be using some P4 to program the forwarding plan. I might also have some SDN controller that's attempting to do some open flow as well as having some BGP to set up the basic forwarding. So the idea would be is that 90% of the packets would forward using the BGP and the best path, but you've got some custom programming for some P4. You want to, if you see this packet, then do this to it. But otherwise I might want to use open flow as a sort of a override the path and do some sort of optimization type stuff. I could run the P4 in a container, the uh, OpenFlow in a container, and the BGP stack, maybe FRR, and then they would all share access to the forwarding table in the actual switch itself or in the ASIC. You've got it exactly. And that scenario is something we see people do all the time. You know, use a standard a distributed routing protocol to create base level forwarding, and then do essentially overrides for traffic that they want to handle differently or special in some way. Yeah, traffic engineering without having to use MPLS. You know, like that's right. Growing up traffic engineering that doesn't use complexity, you know. That's right. <laughs> and typically there'd be some other containers as well that are then doing the telemetry or the monitoring or the billing or the you know, the other sets of uh, operations and management capabilities. You mentioned telemetry, and that might be a good place to pivot. What features are relevant uh, in Sonic with for telemetry? And is, it seems like to me this is one of the drivers for Microsoft building its own network operating system is the kind of the, the data you want to be able to pull out of the system. Yeah, that's right. I mean, this is an area we're seeing a lot of innovation. Um, so I think what exists today is, is just a pale shadow of what's going to exist even six months or 12 months from now. Um, you know, Sonic today supports... I'll call basic telemetry kind of stuff. You know, it's got SNMP engines on there. Uh, it's got streaming telemetry. But what the community is building on top of that now is a whole bunch of data analytics that'll take that streaming telemetry and do interesting things with it. People are writing containers that'll actually move some of the critical uh, analysis, health models, things directly onto the switch um, so that the switch can, can recover itself autonomously if it detects a problem of some sort. Hmm. Um, People are building, you know, firewall intrusion detection kinds of things uh, that, again, sometimes running on the switch, sometimes split between the switch and a, and a web service that helps support the switch. I'll say one of the problems with switches is the CPUs on them tend to be pretty underpowered. So you have to be careful with what you actually run there. But that means that you want to run these sort of hybrid services where you've got a web service with some functionality running on the switch. Can I just deviate there and ask, why do switch makers use cheap CPUs. Why don't they in give us choices to actually put a server class CPU on the board? Why is it so un? And this is across the board. This is as much with traditional, you know, the vendors, the brand name vendors, as the white box makers. They always seem to use these really cheap, nasty CPUs. Is that a? Is there a reason? Uh, you know, I, I'm not a switch vendor, but I essentially think it's just cost that going to a higher class CPU would be a few hundred extra dollars that they're paying to uh, in parts cost, and that's going to eat into their margins. Um, I'm sure, you know, one of the things with the white box switch and it was a many few OEMs, hundred dollars, you can... like, you know, in a $25,000 switch, you're, you're, we're arguing about a few hundred dollars, honestly. 
I, I think that's what it is, really. Yeah. Um, I mean, certainly you can go to a switch manufacturer and say, hey, I want a switch with multiple xenons in there. Um, and I'm sure they'll do it for you. And if you look yeah. at like middle box appliances that are optimized for being web proxies or things like that, you do see multiple server class uh, uh, sockets in there. Yeah. But um, for switches, people think embedded systems and they think, hey, let's control cost. That just, that just baffles me and has baffled me for the last decade as to why why don't we have switches with server class. There was a couple of vendors who tried. Uh, you know, Pluribus, for example, originally started with that sort of an approach, but it never seemed to get legs outside of a, a few startups. I, I agree with you. I hear you. It certainly would make my life easier if there were larger CPUs in there. And as I say, I think it's a cost and emergence thing. So everybody um, in the audience, when you're listening, start telling the vendors that you want to see server class CPUs in the switches, please. Put that in your just make all of our lives easy. Put that in your tender. Must be server class CPU uh, as of, and support for minimum what three hundred and three hundred gigs of RAM? Do you think, Dave? Three hundred three hundred gigs. That would be nice. Four hundred, five hundred. <laughs> the problem there is about power. You know, yeah, so no, yeah, yeah. oftentimes people don't think about, hey, we have to allocate power to the networking equipment in a rack along with the servers or, or whatever. So. Do you anticipate that um, Ace, uh, the the white box or the legacy manufacturers might see uh, that more value is coming out of uh, network OSs? Uh, that that it will then be worth their while from a market perspective to to boost the capacity of the CPU. I think it's going to be customer-led. If customers are asking for more functionality uh, and the ability to leverage things like Sonic and disaggregated uh, switching, then by all means, they'll respond by by putting more capable CPUs on the switch. Um, now, I guess nice. it, well, maybe maybe the Packet Pushers audience can start that ball rolling by asking for it on their tenders. I'd be grateful. You know. <laughs> <laughs> it, just, it just seems like a real missed opportunity to turn your switch into, like we don't, need you know a, a 64 core virtual you know hyper hyper vm blah 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 but you know a four core cpu with a decent high bandwidth memory support would allow us to start putting applications in the switches instead of using an external server and as you say you know containers you can start writing apps that go in them and the reason we haven't seen apps that actually work in the network they always work above the network as a you know SDN controllers and 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 so forth is because nobody's put decent compute power in the switch i guess it may be a little bit of chicken or egg. I mean, essentially, mm. with things like Sonic, we're now getting the software story together so that we can easily deploy and manage um, you know, functionality and logic to the switches. And now that the software is available, I mean, with a closed firmware ecosystem, look, yeah. look, no one except for that equipment vendor is the person who's going to write software that runs on it. Um, yeah, now yeah. that we've opened the ecosystem up, there'll probably be more pressure to actually support running because uh, I can imagine analytics and flow agents that actually collect analytics from the switch, summarize them, you know, and compact them down and then ship them off. Because today exactly. when we eject, you know, we use um, sampled flow records because there's so much data coming off the switch that the switch would die trying to generate the flow records and eject them. Well, why not have an agent locally that gets the records, does a pre-analysis and summarizes the data down to the, to some subset and then just exports that instead? And Exactly right. And the key thing is, is that that business logic as to what counts as an interesting flow is precisely the kind of software that people want to iterate on a lot, and they're going to make improvements mm. to it. So you need the ability to not only run that software on the switch, but then say, hey, yeah. I've got a new idea for what I want to look for as my anomaly detector. Let now, if you're doing IP now. telephony, you could actually just track all the calls moving across the box and use them for billing without having to rely on some other system, right? Um, right. Especially if you're doing transit, like telephony transit or something like that, or if you're doing OpenFlow to do traffic steering in an IXP, which is one of the classic use cases for OpenFlow, is to stop using letting people use BGP and just use an OpenFlow-enabled backbone and say, this peer is allowed to talk to that peer. But it's not a broadcast. It's a safer sort of point-to-point type system. Those are the sorts of things that we just haven't been able to deliver as yet. So I guess... The telemetry analytics is something that we're seeing a lot coming around, and we've seen a lot of the ASIC makers make a big deal about their ASICs using uh, tagging features and rule-driven tagging features. The question I wanted to ask is, I'm pretty sure Sonic is up for this, but are you actually seeing code momentum, so people contributing code around this so that I can start to use the ASIC features for wire speed telemetry? Okay. Yeah, we are seeing a lot of innovation coming in that space. Um 
you know, inside of Microsoft, we're leveraging that for for better analysis of what's going on in our our data centers. Um, we've seen some third party companies that are starting to leverage that capability to offer uh, improved analytics on top of a Sonic platform. Mm-hmm. Um, this this notion of people needing to run their networks and have visibility to what's going on in them has been with us since the first time people started sending frames back and forth, um, and it's just like the biggest need i think of every network engineer and every team operating a network um and we are just continuing to see innovation in that space uh and i don't think we'll ever be done either it's not like the current set of features that are coming out will be like yeah okay the problem solved now yeah they'll yep. always just be the thing that helps us frame that next question we want to answer yeah just for me that whole telemetry analytics thing is a, there's a whole market space for that we've got a whole bunch of vendors in the commercial space who've been sponsoring podcasts and telling their stories around their their product set. So we know that um, the technology kind of exists in one way. And I also, and I think there's an unmet demand in the market, but a lot of people in networking have been burned so badly with SNMP and flow uh, analytics engines over the last, say, decade or two that it's pretty difficult to believe that we've got something different this time, although I think there genuinely is. Convincing people might be harder than just saying, hey, we've got some analytics. We've actually got to prove that it's real. That's right. Yeah, I'm sure you've had the same problem internally. Absolutely. And and as I say, what we find is there's always a gap. You know, the 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 no one's ever going to be happy because as you get more insights, you want to know more. It's like, oh, I know where the bursts are now. Well, okay, what traffic created those bursts? Ah, oh, darn, the current system doesn't tell me, so we need to refine. Yeah. And to my mind, again, that's why we need the ability to very flexibly control what software is running on these switches, because mm. these are the precisely the kinds of things that will will never be satisfied with the answer we have, and always want to to dig in deeper. We interrupt this conversation just for a moment to tell you about a sponsor we think you'll want to hear from: IT Pro TV. A recent MIT study found that IT occupations have grown by 19.5% between 2004 and 2019. That is more than eight times the growth rate compared to other jobs. Now, you might think that just having a college degree, that, that's the thing. That's the key that unlocks the door to big earnings. But it is not as simple as that. In fact, since 2000, earnings for those with a college degree have flattened a bit. On the other hand, earnings have actually grown a lot for individuals working in IT, which I know, a lot of you know this. You're in IT, you're already studying for a career in IT, you've got your sights set on those big earnings. Well, IT certifications are a good way to help boost your chances of landing that dream job. That's how I started climbing the IT career ladder years ago. IT Pro TV has you covered. From CompTIA and Cisco to EC Council and Microsoft, more than 4,000 hours of on-demand training. Engaging hosts, they are going to present the information to you in a talk show-like format, and they are live every day. And those shows go studio to web in 24 hours. Courses are conveniently listed by category, certification, and job role. And you can consume them however you want. You want to use your Chromecast or your Roku or your Apple TV. And of course, streaming via iOS or Android apps. Yeah, go for it. You can consume all of the IT Pro TV training content any way you like. Learn IT, pass your certs, and get a great job with IT Pro TV. Visit itpro.tv slash packetpushers for 30% off all plans. Use promo code packetpushers at checkout. That's IT Pro dot tv slash packet pushers and use promo code packet pushers at checkout one more time itpro.tv slash packet pushers and use promo code packet pushers at checkout and you will save 30 percent off all plans and now back to today's episode i want to pivot a little bit now to start talking about enterprise usage and when i say enterprise what i'm more drilling into is for most people who are network engineers they're not usually code developers a lot of what you've said is you know you've got developers working on software writing features for the switches and that sort of has the presumption that your organization has enough um, networking functionality or the need for specific features that they're actually uh, investing in people to write code to do specific things for them and that implies headcount cost purpose you know a whole range of different things 
What about for somebody who's in the enterprise who's much more used to a bundled sort of off the shelf? Now, what I'm thinking here is when I go and look at Linux, a Linux distribution these days like Ubuntu or uh, Fedora, there's pretty much like a, a, a standard set of functionality that I can get. And when I just install it, I've got most of what I need for most of the cases that I want. I don't have to go and handcraft or artisanally prepare the software. Whereas I have a sense, my impression, and, and maybe I'm wrong and you could correct me, um, is that Sonic is still at the, at the at the early stage, a bit where I was with Linux back in, say, 1995 when I was actually compiling the kernel on installs type stuff. I think that's a fair analogy. Um, yeah, today, the, if you go to that Sonic repository, in that main repository is all of the contributions. And we do have multiple protocol suites from multiple contributors. And an individual engineer looking for a deployment probably only needs to pick one of those. Um, one of the things that Sonic has is this notion of a build repository. So um, yes, before you're going to take Sonic and put it on or switch, you need to actually build Sonic uh, for that switch. Now, for the over 100 different platforms that, you know, so Sonic has been pre-compiled for over 100 different platforms. When you go to the website, you know, if you have that piece of hardware, you can grab that Sonic image and just use it if you want. But we find a lot of people will, gonna, will want to create a build, you know, that has the protocol suites that they want, um, the, the image essentially tuned for for their, uh, their scenarios. Um, but I would expect that we're going to have happen, and it's starting to develop, is that there's going to be a build repository for you know, cloud-style deployments. Mm. Um, and Microsoft is, will probably be the lead in maintaining that one. And then there'll be a build repository for um, more classic enterprise deployments. Mm. So by a build repository, I mean it's essentially the, the commands that will go and pull down from the repository of all the software, the specific containers and packages that someone running an enterprise scenario would want. And, you know, it's highly likely that someone like Adele is, uh, Dell Networking hmm. will be the ones who end up with the primary maintainers of that build repository. And so there'll be sort of like a, a convention. It's a bit like if you're an enterprise, you're either going to use Ubuntu or Fedora in everybody sort of starts from that route and the the delta or the changes that they apply to that is, you know, five or 10%, you know, tuning up the Apache or using Nginx or, you know, whatever it is. But 90% of the system is the same across all deployments sort of thing. That's right. Um, and again, so it's you're talking about... the way things structured is if somebody else comes up and says, hey, you know what, I want to start my own enterprise release as well. So it sounds like what you were talking about, um, you know, a version for the enterprise is pure open source. But I think Dell also has a supported version where they handle, they essentially deliver you a software package that they support based on Sonic as well. That's right. I mean, the um, one of the things we've heard loud and clearly in the Sonic sort of ecosystem is that uh, for enterprise adoption, many enterprises are going to want a paid support contract where they uh -huh. know that there's someone that they can call 24-7 who's going to answer their questions and resolve any problems that they have. And so companies like Dell, uh, but also Mellanox, Appstra, and others have, have stepped up to create a, a, you know, a typical paid support offering uh, for Sonic. Uh, and so again, we'll, we'll see a mix of those sorts of things. Yeah, I just, uh, I just hope that we see a convergence. I think the thing that would kill this is that at the end of the day, it strikes me that uh, there is not that many people who will use Sonic at this point, and too much diversity would actually kill uh, adoption. A bit in the same way that the early days of Linux, when you know, in the in the two thousand dot com bus, there was felt like dozens and dozens of Linux distributions and the sheer variety of them who were all expecting to make a buck out of a Linux distro actually hindered the market because there was no convergence around how things worked and how skills development and for the mass of the market was just too hard to keep up. And that worries me at the same time. I think that that is a risk of the period that we're going through right now. Um, I think the good news is that there are some very large established players who are supporting Sonic. And so for someone who's considering a, a customer, an enterprise considering adopting Sonic, they can, you know, go with the name brand if they want uh, and get mm. that name brand support. Um, they can also explore and, and try some of these uh, more younger offshoots as they want and, and there's probably more risk uh, for doing that. Hmm. I mean, they can always fall back on the larger community support if they need to. But um, Let me ask a different question. How hard is it to run Sonic? So if you were a, a, 
this might not be a good question for Dave Maltz to answer because you are who you are, right? But if you could imagine back to the days when you were five years into your career and most of your work, you know, you spent 30 of your percent time doing technical work and 70% of your time sitting in meetings telling your boss, you know, <laughs> what you did and in change control and all that sort of stuff. So your actual technical comp you know, skill set isn't exactly core to what you do every day and you're in an enterprise with a limited fee. Do you think Sonic is ready for those people or is there, are you really looking for somebody who is willing to, you know, are you looking at lots of hours to get up to where Sonic is? Is it still early or are we in the mature phase, do you think? So I'll say at Microsoft, we have a whole bunch of classically trained network engineers um, who use Sonic every day. And so, um, you know, we have CLIs that run on the switch that if someone's familiar with a classic command line interface, um, they'll feel pretty comfortable running Sonic on a switch. For getting Sonic onto a switch, well, now you can buy switches that actually come with Sonic pre-installed. Upgrading a switch from whatever operating system it came with to running Sonic, um, if you've ever installed Linux on a, on a PC, the process is pretty similar to that and will feel really the same. Um, so I, I would say that sort of the, the entry level is um, if, you've, if, if you're out there and you've got, you know, you know how to work with switches and routers and you've mm -hmm. messed around with Linux a little bit and the command line there, yeah, you, you'll get going on Sonic, no worries. Um, right. It'll feel pretty familiar to you. I want to, Dave, ask Greg's question a little differently. Uh, from the enterprise perspective, can you explain sort of the business value or the value proposition for Sonic or just Whitebox in general? Because I can see why it works for Microsoft. You know, you can tweak the OS and find bugs. Um, but for a general enterprise, when I'm comparing it to a Cisco, a Juniper, an Arista, whatever, what, what business value do I get going Whitebox or Sonic? You might expect them to say, oh, it's going to cost less. And I actually think that that's probably not the right dimension. I mean, certainly white box and open source can result in lower cost. The real reason to go this way is greater visibility, greater flexibility, mm. and sort of a control your own destiny. So yeah, if the only thing a customer is doing with a switch is setting up once and then never touching it, okay, Sonic may not be the right solution for that person. But if you find yourself having to go into your network and make changes to the network, or you're, you're logging into your switches to see what's going on and troubleshoot problems and things like that, hmm. you're at the level of hands-on where the kinds of additional visibility and control that something like Sonic can give you over a switch is going to benefit you. If you ever had to write a script to go say, oh, I got to go pull a bunch of data off a bunch of switches, you're already at the level where... And um, then you have to go and get something like Scrapply to be able to r scrape the CLI of the switch. You might be thinking to yourself, there's got to be a better way, and Sonic is that better way. Exactly right. <laughs> Not that I've ever thought about that. <laughs> uh, so here's here, let me say one thing that we've seen happen again and again. Um, they're probably software engineers in all of these enterprises. And they probably sit, today they sit in a different room and the people who run the network are sort of mm. isolated and siloed and the software engineers are isolated and siloed and they don't really have a reason to talk to each other. Yeah. What we found yeah. is that by putting Sonic into the mix, suddenly now there's a reason for that conversation to happen. And those two groups find that they actually have a lot in common, a lot of insights they can share with each other. Um, it's actually been great for our network engineers who are yep. you know, building new skill sets and developing familiarity with more things. It's a good career add-on for them. But they um, could choose to move into development too. There's choices, new choices. You're not stuck in infrastructure in that sense. You could choose to join the development team and build those skills and move into a Exactly right. And mm -hmm. it typically starts with, you know, learning how to script some things and, and you know, oh, let me learn JSON and REST <laughs> APIs. Um, and it sort of builds on that. And now you've got more... Uh, capabilities. Um, and yeah, I, I've got network engineers who have flipped over to become full developers. I have a lot of people who, who remain network engineers, um, but that sort of uh, spread of information happens. And it's good for the software engineers too, who honestly never really understood how the network worked. And the more that they talk to um, network engineers, they understand it's like, oh, that's why my service broke when I did this thing. Or it's like TCP, oh yeah, now I understand more about what I have to do to make it work well. Stories so, I've heard that even after a network project, they probably still don't really understand how the network works. But that's just a couple of quick <laughs> questions on features. So let me, one of the things that I get thrown at me from Sonic from people is say, but Sonic doesn't have the L2 features. Does Sonic do classic enterprise features like MLAG 
multi-channel lag, multi-switch lag, spanning tree, rapid spanning tree, pavilion spanning tree. Is all that in there or is it still evolving? Okay. I'm sure that you can give me a checklist and I'm going to have boxes on there that Sonic doesn't check today. Um, So uh, we are seeing a lot more of the classic enterprise protocols being added to it. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, yeah, we've got spanning tree today. We've got a variety of them like things. Um, The big one that people have been asking for is... um, uh, EVPNs over VXLAN. Uh, that's currently slated to ship in our December release this year. Um, that's sort of the big unchecked box so far that that's had people concerned. Um, but we've got that scheduled and coming. Um, you know, again, sure. yeah. if there's a feature that someone really needs, it is an open source community. They engage, they can say, hey, look, I need this either they can contribute it or convince some of the other folks uh, involved in the project to, to write that up and contribute it. Yeah. So the flip side of that coin is you're saying that it's coming. So it might not be here this week. So don't rush out and grab Sonic and start installing it. Um, but you could do a feature check and start saying, you know, this might be something I should start looking at this year or next year. Maybe over the Christmas break, I should allocate some time to playing with Sonic. Yep. Yeah, and like so, so we've got a wiki page. You can go and check and sort of uh, what features are already delivered, what's in there on the checkboxes, and then for ones that we not uh, don't have, you know, what releases are they slated into? All right. So as we get closer to the end of the show, um, Dave, have you got some ideas or some suggestions on where Sonic's going to go over the next, say, six months to two years? So we've talked about lots of things, the features that are in development, but is there some particular parts of this that you're interested in? Sure. Well. I do think there's going to be a lot of extra features coming in analytics, extra protocols like we talked about. Um, but we should talk about sort of what kinds of switches running Sonic. I mean, today, Sonic runs primarily on single ASIC devices, the kind of pizza box that you're going to find in your enterprise or at the row or the rack level uh, of a data center. Hmm. Um, one of the things I'm really excited about is we're now taking Sonic and deploying it out to all the other kinds of switches. The big chassis switches that have mm, multiple yeah. ASICs in them with a backplane and line cards. Um, we're doing work. We've heard, had announcements from Cisco and Arista uh, about their work with Sonic to make Sonic run on those kinds of devices. And Juniper. Um, Juniper's chassis is also getting Sonic Oh, yes, Sonic that's ready. right. Juniper They've chassis as well. And not only run on the chassis, but run reliably and with maximum uptime. Exactly. And uh, and moved from more data center enterprise kinds of applications into wide area network, where mm-hmm. you've got routers that have 2 million, 5 million routes in them that can hold a, a default free internet routing table, um, which would then enable Sonic for use on edge routers, peering routers, as well as sort of those core WAN routers. Um, telco. Uh, lots of interesting stuff's happening in the 5G space, and <laughs> that's an area where we really need to bring together hardware and software and this edge packet core. Um, and so we see a lot of people building on Sonic and using uh, Sonic's ability to support innovation to go meet that 5G telco edge yeah. space. They might still really be using heavy metal in the core of the network, because mm-hmm. partly because it's there and partly because it makes sense. But at the edge of the network, instead of using branded routers for the simplest of networking functionality, like the routers at the edge of a telco network often implement very low technology features. It makes sense for telcos to replace you know, branded routers and the margins that the vendors command with low-cost, open-source, flexible, and start developing some of these skills. They are supposed to be experts in networking, after all. Or not, I, I as the case may be. That, the, the edge is often where you want to have local reaction. It's like, hey, yeah. should I continue to peer with this, uh, this, this link or that link, right? You know, mm. hey, the peer down that link seems like they're behaving strangely. Let me shift traffic over someplace else. I uh, could, if I had a switch with a decent CPU, I could start to do threat detection on packet flows moving across the switch. You know, that's right. Instead of doing it in a second device, which is above it, you know, which is a quad-core Xeon with 32 gigs of memory, why is the switch itself not running that code? Just to come back to my favourite topic, why is there not decent CPUs inside switches? (laughs) (laughs) Well, on that note, Dave, before we go, do you have a blog or a Twitter handle? Where, where, if I wanted to get more information about Sonic, where am I going to go? The place I direct people is the uh, the GitHub that's the master Sonic repository. So that's https colon slash slash azure.github.io slash Sonic. 
capital S, capital O, capital N, small I, capital C. Yeah. <laughs> I always just do GitHub Sonic as two words, and then I can always find it. It's pretty easy to find. Azure.github.io slash Sonic. And you can find the whole project there. And in fact, you can actually download it, as you said, and start running it on your favorite uh, only compatible switch because most switches these days can actually run them. You should note that Sonic is actually available for most uh, all the branded vendors do actually have Sonic support if you're a certain type of customer. So that is your conventional switches that are mostly delivered to the enterprise are largely proprietary and not Sonic ready. But there are switches in their product lines that do have Sonic support. And uh, you might want to engage with your branded vendor. And even just by asking whether their switches support Sonic, you're actually doing something to engage that, to create awareness inside the vendors that you care about open networking and the ability to maybe you know, replace their proprietary operating system if the features don't work for you and replace it with Sonic, asking them for Sonic-capable hardware with their operating system on it, but you can then switch to Sonic later is something that you could think about and put it in your tenders along with your request for increased CPU and, and memory capacity. And uh, Dave will thank you very much, as will I. Well, as always, you can find the show notes for this episode in your podcatcher. You can also visit packetpushers.net. There's show notes to go with this. There's a bunch of links uh, that I used to prepare for the show that was provided by uh, Microsoft, a bunch of videos, panel sessions and stuff, which help you get thinking a bit differently, uh, lists of <laughs> – and, and you can find all of the vendors that make assets. It's a far larger than you think. Think. It's not all Broadcom and Denovium. There's, uh, as Dave said, dozens of vendors actually making switching ASIC that is Sonic compatible. It's quite interesting. As always, uh, we've got over a thousand other episodes across our podcast network for you to listen to, along with blogs and news feeds. Follow us on Twitter, is at Packet Pushes. You can find us on LinkedIn and you can uh, follow us there. There's a company page so you can find out more. Uh, don't forget to rate us. It is so helpful if you could leave a rating, helps us stay in the game. And last but but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough. Welcome to Tech Buys from the Packet Pushers, a 15-minute podcast at the intersection of IT and business. Our topic today is open networking with sponsor Pluribus Networks. Now, Pluribus has a unique white box compatible network OS that lets you build distributed controllerless software-defined networks in your data center. There's a lot of buzzwords in there, but the ones that you want to take away is controllerless, software-defined, and distributed in the data center. Our guest, Alessandro Barreri, who's the VP of Product Management for Pluribus Networks, is here to whet your nerdy appetite with more details about how the Pluribus sees things differently and what it could mean with our network. Let's get straight into it. Alessandro, let's start with the white box operating system. Yeah, absolutely. So first of all, thank you for having me. Uh, it's a pleasure to talk to, talk to you guys. Um, so yeah, Pluribus is a network operating system for uh, white boxes um, like uh, like the one from Edgecore, Celestica, or, or even Dell. So we are one of the players in open networking, and we focus ex exclusively on uh, Broadcom Merchant Silicon-based uh, uh, white boxes. And your network operating system goes onto those switches for data center networking solutions and also Metro Ethernet. And the unique feature is your adaptive cloud fabric. So let's talk, what do you mean by adaptive cloud fabric? You've got a white box NOS. What is your cloud fabric? Yeah, so the cloud fabric, uh, you have to think of the cloud fabric as a layer of software. It's our SDN layer. It's a control plane, which runs on top of a standard layer two, layer three network uh, uh, underlay, if you will. So at the fundamental level, our OS uh, is similar to any other uh, traditional NOS. It runs your BGP, your OSPF, your MLAG, your classic uh, data center uh, foundational protocols. But on top of it, we have this distributed application. It's a decentralized model, fully peer-to-peer, -peer, where the switches can communicate and exchange through this control plane network state information. And because of that, there are interesting properties that come out of this distributed fabric, which is, again, in pure software. Things such as, for example, the ability to have a single switch as capable of controlling every other switch. And it doesn't matter which switch mm. it is. Any node in the fabric is equivalent to all other nodes in the fabric. And then, of course, because you have this visibility end-to-end, -end, we can automate an overlay network based on, on VXLAN. So the distribution, the lack of a centralized controller is really uh, an interesting aspect of uh, uh, this technology. 
Now you said distributed switches and controllerless. And so someone thinking about this is going, okay, I'm having a heart attack right now thinking about how you're mirroring all of this network state around to all these devices without a controller. So is this kind of a limited scale thing, like where you can do a pod that you know, fits into some sort of a pluribus cluster, or is this a scale very large? Yes, there are scalability limitations. Uh, the way we overcome the scalability limitation of a single fabric is actually by federating. There's a sort of hierarchical control plane as well. So we can actually federate multiple pods together. And we recently announced our sort of architecture to scale to 1,000 nodes. Uh, today, we're actually more in the in the 100 range. The next release, we're moving to 256. But architecturally, mm-hmm. we have this pod-level federation that allows to break uh, the barrier of, let's say, a single fabric domain. One of the key uh, scalability limitations, particularly in the white box space, is that these boxes are built of, for eco, with economics in mind, so they don't have a powerful uh, control plane in terms of uh, CPU cores or memory. Uh, therefore, we need to be very efficient and, uh, on, on this kind of hardware, and the way to scale is by marrying the fabric concept, which is fully decentralized, what I was discussing before, with a sort of a federation concept, which is a uh, again, another so, layer of software. So the way that I often think about Pluribus is it's a bit like OSPF, which synchronizes, and OSPF is very, very simple, but every router in a, an OSPF network has exactly the same copy of the configuration information. Pluribus does conceptually something similar. Every switch has the config, same configuration, runs the same app, but it's an SDN-like solution. You run a VXLAN overlay, it's distributed. And this particularly, I think, would make it really excellent for multi-site data center architectures because yeah. every switch knows what every other switch is doing. Yeah, pretty much. Um, it, there, is a, uh, there is some layer of sophistication uh, here. So there are configurations. Think of network objects. Think of a VRF or a subnet or a VLAN or a policy like an ACL. Those are concepts which can be naturally distributed across a fabric. Typically, you have to go means switch by switch and do that programming. That's what you do today with an EVPN fabric, for example. You have to configure your subnet or type uh, subnet information in every node, and then in every node you configure BGP, and then you let the BGP control plane. So I think here uh, the, the beauty is that they, because the switches share the state information, they don't need a protocol. So we have a sort of a protocol less uh, or a protocol-free way of having yeah. communication between nodes into the overlay. Yeah. It's also server-free because I don't have to spend <laughs> a large number of large sum of money buying servers to run the controller on because it's in yeah, the switch. Ex- exactly. And this is actually even more attractive in a multi-site scenario. If you look at uh, what other alternative technologies do, which are sent controller-based as the end, what they do is they put multiple controllers in every site, and then there's a super controller for the multi-site. That's a huge expense, particularly as the site gets, gets smaller right, towards the edge or smaller data center. It's an expense that uh, we don't incur into. As long as the switches talk to each other, can see each other, basically, uh, they can form this fabric independently of the topology or the number of locations the fabric is distributed on. What about from an API point of view? This must be a little bit confusing because normally when I'm talking to an API northbound from my SDN controller, well, I'll talk to the controller. Can I just talk to any switch in the distributed architecture as an API point? Yeah, precisely. So as as an administrator, as a fabric operator, you have the freedom to choose which are the switches which answer either uh, SSH or REST API. You enable Tomcat, let's say, only on a mm. subset of the switches of the fabric for, for to limit the security uh, surface exposure, so to speak. And only those nodes are entitled to respond to your uh, REST, uh, REST calls. <laughs> At that okay. point, right. once you log into any switch, you have full control of the fabric. Again, the model is peer-to-peer, peer-to-peer, fully symmetric, uh, where there is no node superior to the other nodes. Kind of cool. Because that means I could just have a, if in some situations I could just use any switch in the architecture where it made sense, or maybe I even have a switch just dedicated to handling the API calls if that's an issue. Exactly. I mean, we we do recommend that the switch with the uh, fastest control plane uh, can be your uh, sort of entry point into the fabric, your gateway to issue commands. So for example, if you have a a spine with a large CPU, that could be probably a good uh, a good entry point uh, because again, there's some stress you put on the CPU with all these REST calls and telemetry you need to uh, export back and forth uh, um, uh, from the fabric. Mm. 
So, Alessandro, can you explain how you build a forwarding table and then interact with the rest of a network that might be out there that isn't Pluribus? So you've got something on the bottom that's figuring out things like, well, like what spanning tree would figure out and what bridging tables do and what routing tables do and so on, and, and it builds from there? Absolutely. So I think one of the foundational aspects of uh, uh, the fabric is uh, that uh, uh, it's predicated on a standard networking layer. So underneath the fabric, which is, a, think of it as a distributed database style application, you really have a, a fully distributed uh, network where every switch runs its, so, its own suite of protocols. So typically in a pluribus environment, what we do is we build an underlay and the role of the underlay is simply to put or to allow the communication between the different virtual tunnel endpoints or IP addresses associated with the virtual tunnel endpoints. So as long as the underlay can route traffic between the VTEPs, then every all the magic, so to speak, or all the value-added services are applied to the overlay uh, of the fabric. And how to build forwarding in the overlay is actually built using our uh, vPort database or endpoint database. We know where every endpoint in the fabric is, and we appropriately program into the overlay, the routing table and forwarding table okay. to route or bridge um, traffic um, on, on the overlay. So the transport between each switch that makes up the adaptive cloud fabric is uh, VXLAN. And then you have your own learning method to know what port uh, an endpoint is plugged into and then can forward things through that VXLAN mesh between the switches wherever they need to go. Precisely, precisely. And if you will, if you really want to find a, a parallel or something you can uh, sort of latch on to, to understand what we do, the concept is like having, we accomplish the same functions of an EVPN control plane without the need to program EVPN, if you will, right? There are, okay. We do a lot more services, but the idea is having a control plane for the overlay, which is now, and we do this build using our our sort of uh, um, vPort database, which is a concept similar to an endpoint database that a technology like Lisp uh, has as well. Hmm. Hmm. So you don't do eVPN, but you could operate with eVPN? So <clears throat> that's actually another very good point and important point. Yeah, so um, eVPN for Pluribus operates at, uh, allows Pluribus to actually interoperate with third-party uh, third-party cloud uh, services, right? You need to export uh, type 5, type 2 route, type 3 route uh, um, to a third-party cloud from another vendor. Then we actually engage through an eVPN translation. We elect uh, a couple of nodes in the Pluribus Fabric as eVPN gateways, and their role is to translate uh, the Fabric commands or the Fabric communication into eVPN communication that third-party can understand. So, as I said before, we are open at the underlay level because we talk the BGP, the OSPF to form a, yeah. a relationship with any other network. At, at the overlay layer, we actually speak eVPN. So you can extend at least type two, type three, and type five routes today to third-party cloud uh, as well. It's similar to the NSXT, if you will, uh, strategy as well, right? Inside the fabric, uh, they speak yeah. their own uh, control plane language yeah. and yeah. outside they actually have to engage on a standard DVPN to communicate over VXLAN. So it plays well with others. You recognize ultimately that the data center fabric is not the only thing. You have to interface out to the direct connects, to the EVPN, to the campus, to the, you know, wherever yeah. it is. And you, so you need to speak those protocols wherever they are. Yeah, ab absolutely. I mean, our mission is to uh, um, insert uh, Pluribus into as many distributed uh, network environment possible. And you can't do it if you have a closed technology. So EVPN for us is a tool to really open also uh, the services on the control plane. Now, you also said at the outset that you could use the Pluribus NOS and the controllerless SDN capability that you have as Metro Ethernet. Now, that would imply that you have a full suite of Layer 2 functionality, Q&Q, Metro ELAN, eTree, and also basic functionality like spanning tree and all that sort of suite. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. And if you think how we do bridging, again, you have to think bridging into an overlay network. Underneath, we build, a, it's very different from a traditional metro Ethernet switch in the sense that the underlay now is layer three. So we, yep. com we converted a traditional layer two switching infrastructure into a layer three infrastructure where we use the overlay to deliver services such as uh, bridge domain, Q&Q, &Q, VLAN, uh, VLAN reuse, VLAN overlap, VLAN aggregation, 
Uh, and then we can build different topology, point-to-point, point-to-multipoint, point E3 topologies. We build this technology into the fabric overlay. And again, we do this sort of protocol-free. Yeah. To do Metro Ethernet or to be viable, you've got this distributed fabric, no controller, this distributed uh, controllerless architecture. And Metro Ethernet would be really quite interesting because as long as the switches can talk together, I can take all of the customer data and just integrate it into a single thing. That's an interesting way of solving the Metro Ethernet problem. And then you've got all the functionality we talked about in the other context. But just to make it clear to people who might be thinking about Pluribus in their network, you do all of the traditional L2 Ethernet, MLAG, spanning yeah. tree, rapid spanning tree, all that. You just speak it, translate it at the edge. Absolutely. The, towards the host at the edge, before you onboard an endpoint into the overlay, we speak the traditional LACP, LLDP, MLAG, uh, spanning tree, all the traditional protocol are game for Pluribus. Now, Alessandro, Pluribus has been around for a lot of years. As you guys have developed in the market, what are the major use cases? Who, who's been deploying it? What are they doing with it? Yeah, so we have a very strong uh, use case in the telco and FEI space. Um, we're deployed in uh, uh, over 70 uh, tier one mobile network operators. Uh, as you guys probably know, we have a partnership with Ericsson and we uh, Ericsson is OEM in the Pluribus software onto their switches. Uh, so definitely that's one area, uh, mobile network operators. <clears throat> but we, we have accomplished over 300 customers into um, mid-market enterprise, uh, government and education, uh, yeah. um, and uh, cloud tier two, tier three cloud providers as well. So that basically, I think the takeaway from that is that Pluribus has been doing this for a decade now. You've been part of the SDN from the very beginning and often in the background. Maybe we haven't seen you... Uh, you know, your name out there in lights on the main street, but you've definitely been doing this for a long period of time. Yeah, absolutely. Pluribus started off with the server switch concept, building their own sort of custom appliances. And this is a strategy we pivoted away around 2015, 2016. So we started off as an open networking company only, let's say, five years ago, four or five years ago. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is when we converted uh, to white boxes. That's probably why Pluribus uh, is not uh, as well known as other players in the white box space. Uh, We effectively started supporting in 2016 the first Dell open networking box. But now the path is clear. And we're very excited. We're making we have great traction as a company, and uh, particularly again in the multi-site um, DCI type of use cases, uh, okay. uh, we are carving out a good presence uh, in, in, in multiple markets. Well, unfortunately, we're running out of time, Alessandro. It's been a while since I heard about Pluribus Networks. But if people want to find out more information, where can they go? Yeah, people can go to www.pluribusnetworks.com/packetpushers and on Twitter pluribus.net. That's Pluribus, P-L-U-R-I-B-U-S, pluribusnetworks.com slash packetpushers. And as always, you can find this and many more fine free technical podcasts along with our website at packetpushers.net. We can follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook and Apple Podcasts. And last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.